probably is. I've always felt like the word probably should just be dropped, you know. If it sounds too good to be true, you better not believe it. For some reason, I don't know how this happened, our Info Crossway email address got on some lists, and we were getting, I think we've successfully unsubscribed, but we were getting three and four day, a day emails to, to Info Crossway saying, you've got this large deposit of money waiting for you. All you have to do is basically... <laughs> and, and I look at those things and I think, do those really work? Well, they keep sending them out. Suckers born every day is what they say. I don't know why anybody even opens those things anymore. But sometimes things, things you know... They are. They sound too good to be true. And if it is too good to be true, I think we probably ought to just have the attitude, it is too good to be true, forget it. Stay away from it. Don't even open it. But then we open the Gospel of John. And we read things like this. You're going to do greater things than I did. And that's Jesus talking. And you can ask anything you want, and I'll do it for you. And automatically we're going, haven't you stopped? I can see some smiles. You've stopped at those things and you've said to yourself, who am I supposed to doubt here? Am I supposed to doubt Jesus or myself? I mean, is it me? Is it, am I the problem? Don't I have enough faith maybe? Or is Jesus saying things that really aren't true? We're in John chapter 14. So let's turn there now. John chapter 14 Doing greater works than Jesus is our focus this morning. Sounds too good to be true. Probably is. Is that what we want to say? I don't think we'd want to say that to Jesus, and yet maybe our hearts are kind of tempted in that direction. John chapter 14, beginning of verse 12. We're just taking three verses today, but they are full of promises that are challenging for us. We're going to need to take the time to think them carefully through. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do, that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I've been kind of wanting a Harley. (laughs) As we get started looking at these promises, let's remember where we're at and what Jesus is doing, what he's saying to us. Remember that these words from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 16 are addressed to our troubled hearts. He is offering, giving peace to us. Peace to his disciples in that immediate context because he's just told them he's leaving. And that's pretty disturbing news to them. But we also, we live with Jesus having departed, not on the scene, sometimes desperately wishing he would come back, sometimes wondering if he's deserted us. And so Jesus is offering us strength and comfort and peace Chapter 14, verse 1, let your, not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Just mentally note, believe also in me. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is about peace. He's saying these things. He's offering these promises so that we can have peace for our troubled hearts. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Verse 33 of chapter 16, the very last verse, the last words of this discourse or this address. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. It's all about offering us peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Keep that. It's not an offer somehow of a smooth sailing, an offer of trouble-free living, but in this world of trouble you can have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And so it's to this end that we would have and know his peace that he is going to give us these three stupendous promises that we just read. The promise of doing, greater, of doing the works that he did. It's a promise to do what Jesus did. And then he extends that promise to doing even more, even greater things than he did. And finally, the promise of unlimited answers to prayer. I'm going to take the first two of those together in verse 12. And we're going to look at those. To do his works, to do even greater works. We're just going to have to think our way through these carefully. So I want to make a number of observations about what Jesus is saying here to help us see and frame and understand this properly. First of all, the works that Jesus is referring to here absolutely does include his miracles. Some would seek to you know, alleviate the difficulty, get around the difficulty by saying, well, he's not really talking about performing miracles. He's talking about gospel works Works of conversion, works of salvation, works of kingdom expansion. The right way to understand Jesus here is that he's talking about both, not one or the other. And by the way, it is never the right approach to God's word to try to get around it. When you come to a verse and say, well, how do you deal with this verse? Are you kind of quietly saying, how do we get around this one? You know, because it doesn't quite fit what we want to believe or what we think is true. So what I'm saying here is, while it is true that it's not limited to his miracles, and we're going to say more about that in a few moments, it absolutely, yes, does include his miracles. Jesus is promising that his people will do miraculous works as he did them. That's what the word works refers to in this very context. If you'll just look in your Bibles back one verse to verse 11, he's just finished saying, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. He's saying to Philip, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. God's in me, I'm in God. And you see me, you see him. And, and believe this, believe me. And if you have trouble believing my word, believe the works. And that whole gospel was written. Recording these signs, John calls them at the end and at various places through the book. But again and again, Jesus refers to them as his works. His works that testify to who he is and the truth of his word and why it is we can believe him. And so here, definitely, he is promising that we will do the very works that he did. But also, I would emphasize, it's not limited to miracles, but we must not try to exclude the doing of miracles. Second observation. This promise is not limited to the apostles. It's another way of trying to say that, okay, he's promising this to those 11, and they did indeed, as we'll note next, they did indeed do these miracles, or we'll note in a moment. 
but maybe not for everyone. Look at what verse 2 says. Who is it saying will do the works of Jesus? It says, whoever believes in me. I think that includes you and me who believe in Jesus. Third observation, this promise is not based on how deep or how strong our faith is. It's not based on that. Jesus is not saying, if you have enough faith, you will do the works that I did. I want to make sure we're, we're locking this in because that is often said about why we don't see more miraculous things today or why we fail to live up to the, 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 the promise of Jesus even in a verse like this, someone might want to point to those words and say, it says, whoever believes. See, faith is the key. But Jesus here isn't talking about the depth or the strength of our faith. It's not the point he's making. He's making the point that this whole gospel is addressed to. He's saying, whoever believes in me, whoever has come to know and understand and believe who I am, or as John puts it in chapter 1, verse 12, whoever has received me. Let me just remind you for a moment, because this is something that's so crucial in, in our wing of the Christian church. When, when the New Testament refers to receiving Jesus, that's a little more. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's a whole lot more than the way we often speak about receiving Christ. When we talk about receiving Christ, we talk about praying a prayer. We lead children a prayer. Now, that's not always wrong. I'm not saying that. It's actually how I met Christ as a young boy. I was led to receive Christ into my heart as a young boy. For me, it was very real. It was very genuine. But it can be very confusing. It can be very kind of an empty thing. It can be the, the praying of a prayer. We think of somehow getting Jesus to come in somewhere. That's not what John means when he says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What John means is Jesus came saying, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. The Father and I are one, making himself equal with God. He came saying those things, but his people did not receive him. What is the opposite of receiving Christ? It is rejecting him. And so to receive Christ is to believe in him. And that's what this verse is talking about. When Jesus says, whoever believes in me, whoever has come to know and understand who I am and has believed in me is going to do my work. So the point is here not about the depth or the strength of our faith. Faith is not some kind of hidden key or hidden secret to doing what Jesus has promised here. And if someone seeks to teach that, you should understand that's not what's going on. He means exactly what he meant in verse 1 when he said, believe in God, believe also in me. He means exactly what he meant in verse 10. Do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me, verse 11, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, as we just mentioned. That's what he's talking about. He's really saying you 11 and everyone along with you who comes to know and believe and receive me for who I really am will do the works that I have done. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? In fact, what did Jesus say about the size of faith needed to move mountains? 
Yeah. When we were in Israel in 2007, we had a really, really cool guide. Remember that? Mahul Mahul. It's a great guy. He's a Palestinian, he's a Galilean Christian, not, not Jewish, but Galilean Christian whose family was traced and village was traced all the way back to apostolic days, to Jesus' own times. And he, in one place, just walked us over to the side and said, here's a mustard seed, let me show you. And he, he took it, ground, just rolled it in his hands, and then all these tiny little seeds. I have some of those still. I kept them. Jesus, if you have faith as a size of a mustard seed, he never said that somehow it's all contingent on if we can just grit our teeth and somehow work up enough faith then these promises will come true. That's not what he's saying here. All right, number four. The apostles and others certainly did the miraculous works that Jesus did. I'm I'm speaking past tense right now. We'll get to the future tense or the present tense in a moment. But certainly, Jesus was promising the 11 are in the room, they're hearing the promise, and they went out and they did the works of Jesus. Just read the book of Acts. Oh, we are reading the book of Acts, aren't we? We are hearing the book of Acts exposited for us, and we're seeing the works of Jesus done in the apostles and in others, healings, exorcisms. In fact, have you noticed in the book of Acts, there are two resurrections, or at least raisings from the dead. There is Tabitha, and there is, in chapter 9, and there's Eutychus in chapter 20. We haven't got to 20 yet, so we didn't notice that one. The apostles and others did go out and do the very miraculous works of Jesus. Fifth, all the spiritual gifts are available today. But the New Testament is abundantly clear that we're not all going to have the gift of miracles. It's abundantly clear. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, manifestation of the Spirit means that you're gifted by the Spirit of God to make Him manifest or to make Him visible. In other words, He shows up as we exercise our gifts. If you read carefully what the New Testament says about gifts, it includes gifts of, say, helps. Right now, we've got some helps being exercised, like, say, for example, in the nursery. What does it say right here? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Not just those who perform miracles or speak in another language miraculously or heal or prophesy, but to each. And it's there for the common good to build up. He goes on to say, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? You talk about size of faith or depth or strength of faith. There is even gift, a gift of faith that's something other than the gift of saving faith, which we have all received, who know Jesus. To another faith, he says, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. And then comes verse 10, to another the working of miracles. 
to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and it goes on like these. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's in the hands of the spirit what gifts we receive. It's not ours to determine. And then later on in the chapter, Paul kind of wraps up this part of his discussion of these things with a series of questions. He says, are all apostles What's the answer to that question? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. There it is. Jesus, the rest of the New Testament clearly indicating that, yes, the people of Jesus, the church of Jesus, the body of Christ will do his works, including his miracles, but not that each one of us would do those works ourselves. Sixth observation, these works are greater. He says we're going to go not only do his works, we're going to do greater works. These works are greater or will be greater, not because they are more spectacular, but because they extend the kingdom around the world. Now remember, when I say they're not more spectacular, you understand, yes, the doing of spectacular things. When I say they're not going to be more spectacular, I have a hard time knowing what would be more spectacular than raising somebody from the dead. You say, well, what if you dramatically threw a mountain in the ocean, literally? Well, to what end? Pyrotechnics, some kind of display, some kind of showy impression, making an impression in the world? No. What could possibly be greater or more spectacular than raising the dead, not to mention making the lame walk? I mean, a person who's never walked in their entire life from birth is said, told... Take up your bed and walk, and he does it? Or a man is born blind and has never seen, ever? And he washes mud off of his eyes, and his sight is there, restored. Jesus isn't talking about doing something more spectacular, but I want to emphasize he's not just saying more in number either. it, It will be, yes, it will be greater in the sense there'll be more of them done, But it isn't just a numerical count here. What Jesus is getting at here is, I've been here for three years. And I may have, you know, I was thinking about this. How many lives entered the kingdom of God through Jesus' physical presence on earth? As a direct result of him doing ministry. How many people? It's hard to answer the question, really. We know he appeared to 500 at one time after his resurrection. So I'm going to... We know he spoke to thousands, right? When he fed the 5,000, there may have been as many as 15,000 there. So we know he spoke to and touched and affected many, many thousands of people. But how many people actually came to real faith and entered the kingdom of heaven? During his lifetime as a result of his direct ministry, I don't know. 
A thousand? A few thousand? And what happens then as we enter the book of Acts, day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out, Peter preaches, and boom! 3,000 people on the birthday of the church. And now just the next few chapters, the numbers increased already to 5,000. And as Sean has been pointing out, it just the gospel continued to increase. It's kind of, kind of Luke's little chapter or division markers. He re- records what's been happening, and then he kind of sums it up by saying, and the gospel continued to increase. And then you just, you, you walk your way down through the corridor of church history, and what do you see? <laughs> you see the gospel spreading across the globe. You see the gospel eventually capturing the entire Roman Empire. Eventually, what we know as Western civilization comes into existence. And if you study carefully and you don't listen just to the revisionist history of our day, the rise of modern science, modern medicine, modern education, something we cherish today, even in our blatantly secular culture, human rights. Do you know the foundation to think that you as an individual have value and that you should have rights that are guaranteed by law and protected by your government is rooted in the fact that our culture once believed you were made in the image of God. That didn't just come about because, you know, we evolved into good-hearted people. That isn't believed in India, for example. I mean, it's coming to be more and more believed as our values have spread around the world, but there are lots of cultures that don't have an intrinsic sense that the individual matters. That's rooted in an understanding that we were made in the very image of our Creator. That doesn't mean all of the world has been Christian or that all people who have believed these things have known Jesus at all. Just saying that the spread of the values embodied in the gospel is testament to the greater works that Jesus was promising in this very place. Now, before we leave this, these first two promises, let's step back. Let's not miss the big point here. And we kind of wanted to walk through carefully, think it through carefully so we understand what it is saying and what it is not saying. Let's not miss the big point. The big point is this. We don't have to live this life with fear, with anxious, troubled hearts, excuse me, because Jesus has gone away and left us. He has left us here with the assurance that we are not just here sort of slugging out life. We are here doing his very works, indeed greater works than he did. I think about those, those disciples, those men, those 11 that night. They probably, this, this probably couldn't have meant much to them immediately. You think of these three chapters as you read through them. There's certainly a summary of what Jesus said. He probably said much more and perhaps elaborated here and there on specific promises or specific assurances or challenges. But you just think about the fact that 
their, their hearts are, are really pretty deeply shaken right now because they know he's telling them he's leaving and they're just confused and emotionally dis- distressed by what's going on. At some point, we have to, we do, we have to slow down. We have to look carefully at what he's saying to us and realize he's saying this. Look, you're going to play a huge role in the history of this planet. <laughs> you have, you, you're going to have important work to do. You're going to be continuing and furthering and extending my mission. And you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be troubled. Have courage and peace. Notice something he says here. At the end of verse 12, he says that we'll do greater works than he did because I am going to the Father or to my Father. No, it's the Father, isn't it? Because I'm going to the Father. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Listen, I know that you're distressed that I'm going away. But it's my going away that's going to make it possible for you to do these things. My departure is what's going to enable you to do my works and even greater works. How is that going to happen? Well, Jesus hasn't said yet, but he's going to. Let's just peek ahead here into chapter 16. Things that are right here in these chapters, I didn't put on the screen today, so if you've got your Bibles open, flip over to, to 16 or whatever you do, scroll over to verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 4. And he's going to talk to us about this whole thing about while I was with you and now I'm leaving. Look what he says, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. I was here. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? They did ask that earlier, but right now I think things have shifted for them. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And that's his point here at the end of verse 12, when he says you're going to do greater works than I because I'm going to the Father. It's my going to the Father that's going to make this all possible. And that's why you don't need to be distressed and troubled. For if I do not go, here we are, verse 7 of 16, if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, your Bible may say comforter, will not come to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, of course. And another time we're going to get into that in more detail, but the word helper strikes me as a little bit weak, and the word comfort, comforter is a little off focus because it's not talking about personal comfort as its primary emphasis. The Spirit does comfort. <clears throat> but that's not the point of this title. The point of this title is he's going to be for us what Jesus was physically for his disciples while he was here. I'm going to send you another one. He's going to be like me. He's going to fulfill the role in your life that I fulfilled by being physically present with you. So he's saying again, let me read it again. Make sure that this is really hitting home to us. 
See, the, the exciting reality of this promise is, first of all, we are participating in the works that Jesus himself did, and even greater works than those. But also, it's his absence, his departure, that made it possible for these works to be done. So that we don't need to be dismayed that he's gone away. We can have courage and peace Verse 7 says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I stay, the only help you're getting is me physically if I'm with you. If I go, the comforter comes, the helper comes, the paraclete comes. He'll be in and with all of you everywhere in the world. See, the Spirit being present, being poured out, being given to us, means that God is present with us everywhere, all the time, worldwide. And so it is we can do the works of Jesus and do greater works and extend his kingdom. If I go, I will send him to you, verse 8 says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the world, ruler of this world is judge, judged. In other words, this is the promise of Acts 1.8. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses. If the Spirit comes upon me, you'll, re- you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, the uttermost parts of the world. And guess what? <laughs> it made it all the way to Linwood. <laughs> this isn't the end. My going away. My going away is going to make it possible. Now, let me just quickly tie in the next thing. We're not going to address it today, but let me just quickly go back to John chapter 14 and just look ahead. What's the next promise? He promises we're going to do his works. Then he promises answer to prayer, unlimited answer to prayer. And then he makes a promise right after that. And what is it? He's going to send his spirit. That is why we don't have to have troubled hearts. Now, this does not mean we're always going to have dramatic victory in every circumstance, nor does it mean that we're promised that we're always going to have great visible earthly success in all that we do. There's plenty of feelings of defeat and discouragement in ministry and serving Jesus. So what does it mean? What does this promise mean if it's not a guarantee of victory and earthly success all the time? What does it mean? It means this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It means this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So that's what I want us to, you know, as we wrestle with this promise, it sounds like, really? Is that really going to happen The main, the big truth here is this is encouragement to understand that in the absence of our Lord, we are doing his works and greater works. Now let's move on to the promise of unlimited answers to prayer. And in some ways, this one's even tougher. (laughs) Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Perfect recipe for just rip it out of its context. I love this one. Blank check. Credit card with no limit. All right? Well, again, let's just work through this similar fashion with some observations to help us think it through clearly. Number one, and here is where the ESV has done us, I think, a real disservice. I'm not sure why they chose to do it this way. This promise is clearly tied to the previous two promises. And here's how it is. If you have the ESV, as we're using here, in the chair Bibles and so on, You'll notice the way verse 13 starts. It just starts out with the word whatever. Guess what it starts out with in Greek? It starts out with the word and. So this is what he's saying. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than he will do, than these he will do, because I'm going to the Father and. Whatever you ask in my name. Do you see it? This is not a standalone promise of a blank check. Credit card with no credit limit. It's not what it is. This is a promise for the doing of the works of Jesus. For the extension of the kingdom of Jesus. He is saying, as you go on mission... As you do the works that I have done, whatever you ask in the doing of these works, for the doing of these works, this is mission asking. This isn't just blank promise, blank check promise, anything we want. And I'm disappointed because I really did want that Harley. Second observation is this promise is dependent upon asking in Jesus' name. So anything you ask in my name. What does that mean? Well, to ask in Jesus' name, number one, is not to tag a few words onto the end of our prayer. Okay? Most of us have learned to pray that way. I pray that way. It's, I think, a good and biblical way to pray. But this is not formula that Jesus is talking about. This is not a kind of habitual tag at the end of our prayer. There's certainly no kind of magical incantation. You just say some words and poof, you know, the genie pops out of the bottle and grants you your wishes. Jesus' name represents him. To ask in Jesus' name is to ask consistently with who he is. And it is to ask in his authority. And it is to ask for his fame. This is Jesus-based, Jesus-focused, Jesus-glorifying asking in the context of mission. So as you're on mission... And you have need for the accomplishment of mission, for the doing of my works. Ask and you will receive. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's what this kind of praying is about. It's seriously and soberly asking for the things we need, asking through Jesus for Jesus to do the works of Jesus. We're given further insight in this very address. Again, I didn't put it on the screen today, so if you got it open there, just flip forward to chapter 15, verse 7. This isn't the only thing. Jesus is going to come back to this promise, and he's going to look at it from different angles. In chapter 14, he's saying, in my name, here in chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, and ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, there's again, there's a, there, you put that on a plaque, hang it on your wall, a magnet on your refrigerator door, and it's very easy to lose the context here. You've got to see Jesus speaking in his context. But first, before we, we touch the context itself, just notice what he's talking about here. In Jesus' name, chapter 14 here, abiding or remaining in him. The word abide doesn't contain any kind of hidden spiritual, deeper, mystical meaning. It simply means to stay or to remain. And he's talking here, chapter 15, about what? What is the metaphor, the picture that he's drawing of our relationship with him? We are like branches of a grapevine attached to the main vine. You've got to stay connected. The branch's got to stay connected into the vine for it to be alive and productive. And it is as we remain in Christ on his mission that he is telling us and assuring us he will do for us what we need. And also as his word remains in us, as we're living in conformity to what he has taught us. Now, notice, I just want you to see this. If you've got it open there, the context is all about bearing fruit. See, the context in 14 is about doing the works of Jesus. The context here is about bearing fruit. Once again, this isn't about ourselves. This isn't about getting something we're desiring. This is about doing the work of Jesus, bearing fruit for him. And it's in that focus that we will receive answers to our requests. Do you need something to do my work? But abiding in me, asking in my name, I will do it. I want you to notice here in verse, chapter 15, <clears throat> the next verse after this promise, verse 7 says, If you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, or wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 8, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You're asking for the sake of bearing fruit so that God may be glorified. And just note that for a moment. Later on in the same chapter, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain, in other words, last, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you, in and for the purpose of fruit-bearing, 
is this promise. Now we can go one step further. John himself wrote about this promise in his first letter. And personally, I take this to be John's commentary on Jesus' promise. And this is what he says. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. In his name, abiding or remaining in him and in his word, according to his will for the purpose of doing his works and bearing fruit. Now, let's do the same thing we did. Oh, no, I have one more point. Sorry, I almost skipped to one more observation. The ultimate aim of this promise is bringing glory to God. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Oh, look at that. It's not that the Father may be glorified in us, it's that may be glorified in the Son. So that as we do the works of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, the Son is made famous. The attention is drawn to Jesus and God is glorified. As his kingdom expands, more and more people are bending the knee to him, confessing him as Lord, becoming his fully devoted followers, which is the definition of disciple. The kingdom of God is coming as more and more people are under the reign of the king and the father receives the glory. And so you can see that Jesus is going to be very, very ready and willing to answer prayer that is going to bring glory to God. We're crying out to accomplish his works and making our needs known for the sake of doing what he has called us to do. And he will answer so that God may be glorified. Now again, as I started to say, Let's step back and let's get the big point. Jesus, with this promise, is encouraging us for this time of his absence. That's his point. He wants us to live with confidence in answered prayer as we go about his business. He wants us to have confidence in answered prayer. He also wants us to learn to pray boldly and expectantly. And this, I would dare say, perhaps more so in our our branch of the Christian family, our weakness. We don't pray boldly and we don't pray expectantly as we ought. Someone is sick and we pray for healing, but we just really... You know, we've learned to expect that it probably won't happen. I'm not commenting on does it, does it change the outcome. The outcome is in the hands of God. I'm talking about our focus, our heart toward 
God and in response to this promise. I think, I think we can read this promise and be more bugged by the fact that, that we don't know what to do with the whatever you ask, I'll do it, than we are about just getting busy and believing and asking. And asking with faith and asking with the intent and the hope and the expectation that God will answer. Jesus, in fact, Jesus says he'll do it. For the glory of the Father and for the greater work of of the kingdom of God. If we have any weakness, it is that our praying is too small because our God and our Jesus are too small and our vision is too small and our expectations are too small and in this way, our faith is too small. Let's just wrap this up this morning, reflecting on our vision as a, as a body, together, as a family of God, and what it is we, we are hoping and, and expecting and seeking to be and to do for our Lord Jesus. Is our vision too small? Do we see ourselves according to the promises of verse 12? We are, in fact, those who believe in him and are doing his works and even greater works. And we live with that as a sense of vision for Crossway. Not just, well, we'll just hunker down and be a nice little church. But they were saying, hey, we're in this world for great purposes. And we can expect great things from God and attempt great things for Because Jesus said so. He promised us those things. Not for ourselves, but for his own glory. Is our praying too small? Is our Jesus and our God too small? Have we kind of just accepted that we're living in an increasingly non-Christian and increasingly anti-Christian world and we just kind of wrap our coat a little more tightly around ourselves against the storm and against the cold, put our heads down and hope nobody notices us and bothers us? Or do we hear these glorious promises of Jesus and say, that's what we want for Crossway. That's what we want. When I say for Crossway, I'm not talking about some organization that puts on this thing that you attend on Sunday morning, and we as his family, his people, uniting together saying, we want to be about this because this is what Jesus has promised us. And this is what he's calling us to. And while we may sometimes have remaining questions, like we prayed and it didn't happen, still we pray because he promised. In another place in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, you ought always to pray and never lose heart. With a promise like that, we should be praying boldly and expectantly and working for great things. I don't think I'll take the time to ask you to turn to this this morning. Let me just summarize what I know many of you are familiar with. But if you think about what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at the very end, it's there that he talks about the fact that 
that it's not many mighty that are called, right? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, I, I worry for us American Christians that we, we think that if you're really going to accomplish anything, you've got to have a big, worldly, impressive organization. And we're denying the gospel and we're denying the power of God when we think like that. Because you know what he goes on to say here? The problem is when we get wrapped up in that, the glory starts going the wrong place. It starts becoming about us. I love what Paul said about his own ministry. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you. This is Paul. I don't know of any Christian any follower of Jesus has been greater than Paul. And this is what he said. When I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Wow, I feel better when I read that. <laughs> I feel weak and inadequate all the time. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. My preaching is just ordinary and average. But in demonstration... Not, not in power and wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We have amazing promises from our Savior of what he has assured us we will accomplish for him. And his readiness to supply all that is needed for it. Let that drive our vision for the kingdom and what we as a family are going to be about. Let's pray together.